This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now, we started our series a few weeks ago, and I gave you some kind of guiding points that kind of go through really what this series is all about. And the end of the first message, I had you repeat kind of the mantra of this series, and it was this, that I know a hot mess when I see one because I am one. If you have Snapchat, we actually pay, we have a geo filter today. You can take a picture of yourself and swipe left, and then you can post a picture that says, I am a hot mess because I know I know one because I am one. You can do that today if you have Snapchat, just as an aside of that, right? But But this this is a, a statement that should really shift the way that we think about other people's messes. The reason that I can look at other people's lives and go, it looks like you're a mess, is often because I've been there before. And it should change the way that we approach other people's lives. It should provoke empathy and understanding and grace instead of judgment. But that's normally where we go, isn't it? that we see other people who are living messy lives and we judge them. But we know a hot mess when we see one because we are a mess. We know that. And when we get into messes, we all say the same thing. We all say the exact same thing. We say, well, nobody's perfect, right? We say that. You've said it before. But when we say that, what we're really saying is that there's a perfect that nobody is. There's an idea that I can't get away from that's kind of pressing into me, an idea of perfection that exists beyond what I find myself doing. And if I could get rid of it, I would, because then I would feel better about myself. But I can't get rid of it. It continues to gnaw and nag against me my entire life. And that is a standard of perfection that was set by Jesus himself. God is perfect. And we're constantly being measured against that. And there is, in all of our lives, a measure of mess. And because of that, it should cause us to start to look at our lives and try to evaluate. So I want to just share a story with you. Maybe this is a story you could identify with. If you're a single girl in here, let's just imagine that you're on a date. If you're married, let's rewind a little bit to when you were a single girl and you imagine that you're on a date, okay? And, and the date's going so good. The guy is, he actually came and he doesn't smell bad, right? He's not noticeably unattractive. He took you to a, a very nice place to have dinner and you're having dinner and it's going really well. The conversation is good and you decide, I like this guy. I want to know a little bit more. And so you ask him a pretty dangerous question. You say, hey, could you tell me three goals that you have for yourself? Just three goals. I just want to know what you want for your life. And he comes back and he says, well, first thing, I, I don't want to lose the job that I currently have. Well, oh, okay, you don't want to advance or anything. Don't want to lose the job that I currently have. Number two, second goal. I don't want to get any more DUIs. I just don't want to do that. And lastly, my, my third goal would probably be that I don't want to get any more women pregnant. 
I don't know about you, but if I were in those situation, date is immediately over with right there, right? Can you imagine being a dad and, and a guy comes in and you're talking to him, he's about to take your daughter out on a date, and you go, hey, do you have three goals? And he goes, number one, <laughs> I don't want to lose the job I have. Currently, number two. Can you imagine? You know what's so sad about that? Is that's how many of us are navigating our spiritual lives. It's how many of us are navigating our spiritual lives. Because what we've relegated the message of Jesus to is maybe the lines, I've, I've, I've modified them for, for this series, but maybe the words of this song, you've heard this before, that Jesus loves the little messes, all the little messes of the world. Have you heard that before? Jesus loves the little people, all the little people of the world, and, and we know that people are messy, and so we, we've kind of turned the gospel into this popular understanding of the message of Jesus that is actually quite, quite twisted. It's not a great understanding of what exactly Jesus was pushing us to, that, that there's this message and this understanding that what Jesus invited us into is that I'm going to make a mess, and then I can go ask forgiveness. But I'm probably going to make that same mess again, and then I can ask for forgiveness again. And then I'm going to make that same mess again, and then I'm probably going to ask for forgiveness again. Can I just tell you that that's not what Christians believe? Christians believe this, that Jesus loves the little messes of the world, and he loves us way too much to leave us that way. And so for the rest of our time together, I'm going to push against the notion that all following Jesus is is making a mess and asking to be cleaned up. Because that is so popular and prevalent in our culture that we think that all it is is this cycle of, well, I'm going to make a mess, I'm going to blow it, and then God's there so I can go ask for forgiveness and he'll clean me up, but I'm inevitably going to make a mess and it's often the same mess. And that's not Christianity at all. It's, it's country music, it's not Christianity. There's several types of Christ or country songs, and I like country. I'm not really kind of, kind of dissing the brand of music as much as I am a presentation of Jesus inside of it. There's, there's sometimes a presentation of our relationship with God that I like to call the bad boyfriend scenario, where our relationship with God is presented in light of a bad boyfriend that continues to blow it with his girl, but she continues to take him back. I even have lyrics to show you. How about, how about today we, we look at some Eric Church? I love Eric Church, okay? From, from like Jesus does. I'm a long gone wailing song on vinyl. I'm a back road sinner at a tent revival, and she believes in me like she believes her Bible. And she loves me like Jesus does. Bad boyfriend. I keep messing up. She keeps taking me back. And sometimes they even take it a step further where it's like, all right, not only do I repent and ask and they take me back, but, but God just understands me. I'm a mess and he loves me anyway. How about some Miranda Lambert for you? Because I heard Jesus, he drank wine. And I bet we'd get along just fine. He could calm a storm and heal the blind, and I bet he'd understand a heart like mine. 
See, that reduction of the message of Jesus to I can make a mess and then I can go to God and ask him to forgive me. Then I can make the same mess and I can keep going back to God and this abusive, cyclical way of living that continues to perpetuate the same failure, the same, that is not the message of Jesus. And the problem with this is, is that so many of you are living your Christian lives, your spiritual lives, you're following Jesus in a manner that mirrors that. And your friends that don't believe in Jesus are sitting back and watching you do it. And they're asking themselves, what's the difference between them and me? Truth is, We do the same things. The only difference is they feel guilty about it and I don't. You see, when we relegate the message of Jesus to I can make a mess and then he'll forgive me, but that gives me the ability to go back and make a mess and then he'll forgive me in that cycle. When we relegate the message of Jesus to that, Eventually, people will look at the way that we live and they will make this decision. There's not very much to that at all. There's not very much to this. But see, the claims of Christianity are vast beyond what we just talked about. Because that cycle of I blow it, and then I'm forgiven, and I make a mess, and then Jesus cleans me up. That is a reduced, dumbed-down, perverted presentation of the message of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of spend time talking about that today. And the first thing you notes today, and this is so counterintuitive for many of us, but I want you to see this, that following Jesus is not about avoiding another mess. It's not about avoiding another mess. And for so many of us, this is how we have defined our pursuit of Jesus. Because if I were going to ask you, what would it take to pursue Jesus? You would give me, all right, well, you don't need to do this, and you don't need to do this, and you definitely don't want to do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this. Because if you get messy, then you have definitely blown it. But I don't know about you, but I've read the scriptures, and it appears that the people around Jesus thought he was quite messy. Because he definitely didn't shy away from a mess. See, following Jesus is not about avoiding another mess. Following Jesus is about becoming something. It's about becoming something. And those two things, avoiding a mess and becoming something, speak to a tension that is so present in this narrative. It's one where there is a culture in Christianity that is overly focused on behavior. Where we define what is right and wrong and right and wrong and we talk about behavior. And then there's the gospel, the presentation of following Jesus inside of scripture that is overly focused on being. This is why we blow it as parents. 
Because as parents, far too often we focus on the behavior of our kids, not on their hearts. We don't try to not, we try to fix their behavior without ever addressing their hearts. Can I just tell you that if you try to fix the behavior and you think you fixed the behavior, but you never address the heart, the behavior will come back often in another form. Because the behavior is a symptom of an underlying disease. That's why the gospel points to something that's deeper, something within us. It's our being, and out of our being flows who we are and what we do. So I want to go to the first chapter of Philippians. If you had to nail me down, Kevin, what's your favorite book in the Bible? It would probably be Philippians. Last year, we preached a whole series on Philippians. I love that, that this is a, a letter that was penned by the Apostle Paul who is literary-wise the, the hero of the New Testament, having penned and influenced over half of it. And here he is. He's, he's went from a, a church a killer, a Christian killer, to a church planter. And he left Jerusalem and started churches all the way around the Mediterranean rim. And the first church he started was the church in Philippi. And I can tell you that there's a special love that you have when you planted a church. That's why I love you. I, I, there's a connection that's there. And so the letter finds him 10 years removed from having started the church in Philippi. He's imprisoned in Rome in an interior cell, in a prison, where he's now down in a basement. The cell that he was contained in was roughly 8 foot by 8 foot, maybe 10 foot by 10 foot, only 4 and a half feet tall. He could not stand up. He wasn't given bathroom breaks. And he penned this letter to the church in Philippi. And if you ever read it, it talks over and over and over again about joy and joy. And this is how you can have joy. From that context, what a powerful statement of who God had become to him. And he opens this after his addressing them in verse 3, and he says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God, who, whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy. For you have always been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you heard it until now. Can I, I'm just going to stop right there and just say this. That as a pastor, I want to say thank you. Because there are many of you that over the past five years, you have become my partner. This, I'm, I, I'm maybe your pastor, but we're partners in something that God is doing here. And five years ago, this was a dream that God had given me. And now we have a church that's seeing four or five hundred people a week. It's remarkable. It's, it was something that I couldn't have even envisioned years ago. And it's happened because there were a group of people who decided that they were not going to be so concerned about what they did as to who they are. And they decided to become people who cared a lot about being servants. And they said, I, I'm not going to worry about the consequences there. I'm just going to serve, and I'm going to serve hard, and I'm going to go after this. And we're going to create a place where people who are far away from God can come and feel at home and feel safe and meet Jesus. And it's been awesome. And occasionally, if you're, you know, somebody that I talk to, I'll probably even remind you of that verse. And that's how really the, the message of Jesus has spread 
from the very beginning of time that, that there were people who decided that they would lay aside their own initiatives and care deeply about what God was doing. And so then he begins to talk about them as a people. And he says, I'm only going to give you the first half of this verse because I want to spend some time with it. He says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you, who began this good work within you. He says, all right, so I want you to understand what happened 10 years ago when you received Jesus and made a decision to follow him. When you did that, something started inside of your heart. God started doing something inside of you at that moment. You know, what he was doing is something that is going to translate into everything, which is in your notes today. I want you to see this, that following Jesus is an inside-out journey. God began something in you, and what he began in you is going to come out of you. Following Jesus is an inside-out journey. And far too many times we try to reverse engineer that, which is why we say, don't do this and do this and don't do this and don't, instead of just like, this is how you need to be. And if you can get being right, then your behavior will follow. Because following Jesus is an end, and it's something that we have to grow in. It's not something that's instantaneous. There is no magic silver bullet that God shoots you with when you come to know him that changes everything instantaneously. It's a growth pattern. It's something that we have to grow into. And the goal of Jesus, followers, is to become mature. I mean, the goal is maturity, and you cannot rush maturity. See, the thing is, you can rush knowledge. You can rush experiences, but you cannot rush maturity. You can cram for a test, but you cannot cram for maturity. And so he continues on, for I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Leave that up there. I want you to see this. Here, this is the nutshell of what, what God's doing, that God began something in you and he's going to continue it until it's finished. And I want you to get this because it's so important that the message of Jesus is not supposed to be relegated to managing your sin. And if it ever becomes that, you've missed the point. Because God is doing something in you that translates into what you do. Because we do what we believe. God is doing something in you. And he wants to do something in you. And you know what's pretty neat about this? When's it over? It's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns, which I don't know if you figured this out because I, I, I just had to reflect on this a little bit. That's not today. That means he's not done yet. I don't care if you're in here and you've been following Jesus for 50 years. He's not done. He's not done. And that should 
produce a level of humility and honesty with us because it is a lifelong process of growth towards maturity. So I think the question that it just bears asking if that's what God is doing is what is God making us into? What's he doing inside of me? What is God? What is all of this pain and joy and all of the stuff where I know God's working and it's quite uncomfortable what I know? What is he actually doing? And there's some Sunday school theological answers that we could drop. In old school days, when you ask somebody in Sunday school, they would say, well, God wants to make you holy. And I have never spent a lot of time with someone who doesn't go to church who really is excited about becoming holy, right? (laughs) It's just not something that seems vastly appealing to them. Because I think that our understanding of that has really shifted from what God meant for it to be. Because the word holy means to be set aside, to be set apart. And really, if you think about it, the only things that are set aside and set apart in your house are things that you don't use at all. You ever notice that? I think that our understanding of holiness can really be kind of understood when you watch a doctor scrub in for a surgery. I mean, you know that we have like gross things on us at all times. And so doctors go through a process where they scrub in before they go cut you open and get inside because you don't want the gross things that are on them getting inside of you, right? That's just the whole point of it. And so they will scrub in and then they do this neat thing where they take their hands so that they don't touch anything and they do this when they walk into the operating room until they are ready to start working. And the reason they do that is because they want to stay sterile and clean. They don't want to touch anything that could contaminate them. And I think that there are a lot of Christians that go through life like this, not wanting to touch anything that's messy or dirty. And if you pay attention in the gospel to the religious leaders around the life of Jesus, it seems as if Jesus was awfully willing to get messy. Because my favorite name that he was ever called in Scripture was not Alpha and Omega or the Lion of Judah. It's that he was called the Friend of Sinners. Because I need that kind of friend. And I'm sure you do too. So let me tell you what I think God is making us into. I think God is making us better. This fall, we're going to do a series called Better. I'm super stoked about it. Because the reason that the gospel makes us better is because perfect is not an option. Do you realize that? You'll never have a day that you get to be perfect. But the gospel is making us better. But sometimes I think we misunderstand that. We don't realize that when the Bible says holy and set apart, the set apart was so that now God could use it. It's probably going to get a little bit messy. Right? Because nothing that's used stays sterile. And I want you to understand better because a lot of times when we say God's going to make us better, We think, well, life's going to get better. But I want you to see this, that following Jesus doesn't necessarily make your life better, but it makes your life, makes you better at life. I want to say that again. Following Jesus doesn't necessarily make your life better, but it makes you better at life. 
which means that your kids are probably still going to throw tantrums. But you may have a little bit more patience with it, right? You, you may still get a, a flat tire, but maybe this time you can see through the imperfection to an opportunity that God gave you in the midst of that. It makes you better at life. So the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 in Philippians continues then by, by praying over the church in Philippi. I want you to look at this prayer. And this is my prayer, that you stay out of trouble and you keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> Does that sound like a prayer that the Apostle Paul would have prayed? No, but it sounds so much like the prayers we pray, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like the prayers that we pray. And maybe the reason that you're struggling in your relationship with God is because of the way you're praying. You see, the way that we pray, it reveals what's really happening on the inside. Really, what, what's happening at the core of who we are is reflected in the way that we pray. Sometimes we sell God so short. If your prayers are constantly consistent of God, just keep my kids safe and keep my spouse safe and keep our home safe. Can I just tell you, you probably have a much lower image of who God should be and could be in your life. Because that's not what God wants for you. You realize that a lot of times, can I just be blunt with you? A lot of times we pray for God to protect our kids. And if we were going to be totally honest about what we're praying, really what we're saying is, God, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that one of my kids has a tragic accident. And so for my own emotional safety, would you keep them safe? For, for my own emotional stability so I don't ever have to walk through that, God, would you keep them? So do you see how selfish that is? And the Apostle Paul prays this prayer in Philippians 1. And it's the kind of prayer that we need to start praying. Look at what he says. He says, and it's my prayer. This is my prayer for you. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Leave that up there. This is my prayer, that your love may abound. You know what? When's the last time you prayed that you would be able to love somebody better? When's the last time you prayed? Because you know what? We don't pray that prayer. You know what we pray? We pray, God, you're going to have to help me with my kids or I'm going to kill them. <laughs> they won't listen to me. Nobody's listening to me. I'm asking them to clean up their room. God, you're going to have to help me out or I'm going to strike them dead. Or we pray like, God, you're going to have to do something with my husband. That poor joker won't put the seat down. I fell in the toilet this morning and I want him dead. God, you got to do something about this. Right? We pray that way. And we pray, God, Help my, help my husband to love me better. Or God, I, I just want my boss to respect me more. Or God, can you just help my friends to, to honor me and 
treat me a little bit better than they do. We pray about the way that people love us, but how many times do we really pray about the way that we love people? And the Apostle Paul opens this prayer by saying, hey, here's my prayer. I want you to love well. I want you to love well. I pray for your love that it may abound, that the love inside of you would be reflective of the love that God has for you, that it would flow through you so that you could experience the love of the Father, but it wouldn't stop with you that you would love other people that way. And then he prays, this is a little counterintuitive. That we would sense what God wants us to do. But that's not how we pray at all. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times when we pray, our prayers are an effort to superimpose our will onto God. We pray this, God, I saw this job and I want to get it. Would you help me get it? We pray, God, God, I met that boy the other day at the gym. Lord Jesus, would you help me? Would you please help me? I want to go out with that boy. We pray, God, I need that promotion. I need that promotion. Would you get that promotion for me? And if we're honest, so many times when we're praying, what we're really doing is superimposing our will onto God. And I want you to see the three things that the Apostle Paul prayed for. Look at this. Number one, he prayed for our love for other people. He prayed for our love for other people. He prayed that we would love other people well. That we would love with a love that is reflective of the Creator who has loved us. Because there's a question that continues to be asked throughout Scripture. Is that how can we claim to love an invisible God when we can't love messy people that are around us? How can we claim that? Because we can't. Not to a world that's lost and broken and dying. How do we claim that we love. So the Apostle Paul says, here, I'm praying, I'm praying that your love will abound. And then he says this, I want you to understand God's best for you. I pray that you would be able to discern and understand through knowledge and insight what God wants to do, what is best for you. I want you to understand what's God's best for you. Instead of us trying to tell God what's best, I, the Apostle Paul says, here's what, I, I want you to start praying and resting in God's revelation to you of what is best for you. And then lastly, he prays for our obedience to God's will. Once you understand who God is and what he wants from you, here's what the Apostle Paul then prayed. I pray that you are blameless on the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, that there will not be a moment that he asks you to do anything that you said no. You see, I think... Maybe we need to start praying some different prayers if we're honest today. We need to start praying prayers that reflect a a bigger God, a God who's much more capable. Let me give you a simple prayer that I've been praying. We even did a series on this about a a year ago. If you you don't even know where to start, let me give you a, a place to start in praying. It's this real simple. Write this down as I say it to you. God, help me to see what you see. God, help me to see what you see. 
I'm tired of the way that I think about things and my perception being the only way that I view the world. God, help me to see what you see. And number two, God, help me to do what you want me to do. God, help me to see what you see and help me to do what you want me to do. You know, in our culture, it's not unusual to talk about hot mess. It's not unusual even to talk about hot mess in Jesus. There's been a lot of y'all send me some pictures along the way. You even have t-shirts and bumper stickers to go with this. And I think the most common cultural saying that it kind of it goes with this around, around our parts is, Jesus loves this hot mess. Which I, I don't want to push back against the love of God, but I do want to push back against the notion that it's okay to stay there. Because Jesus does love you as a hot mess. You are imperfect, and your life, just like my life, is filled with categories of messes, some that we share, some that we hide. But the problem with just saying Jesus loves this hot mess is that it misses the part that God loves you so much that he refuses to leave you that. And there are so many of us that have wrestled with the same hurts and the same doubts and the same fears over and over and over again. And God's invitation is let me make you into something new. That's what the cross was all about. We're on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin. The penalty for our sin. Which means that we're free to walk out of our sin. Which is why on Sunday morning, after being dead on Friday night, carrying the weight of our failure, Jesus walked out of a tomb, victorious over the most gross, difficult enemy we would ever have, which is death. And when he defeated death, he invited you to become something new. So that that cycle of you making a mess and always needed to be cleaned up could be broken. Because this life that God gave you, that he's invited you into, it's bigger than our messes. It's bigger than our inability to overcome it on our own because he can and he has. And so today, if you're here and honestly, you're just saying, you know what? I've, I've been that hot mess. I've, I've been that guy that's struggled with this and struggled with it and struggled with it. Maybe you're here and you're that girl. And you've struggled with the same things. There is liberty and freedom in Jesus for you today. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. 
For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.